Okay, again, we're in Acts 21. That's page 930 in the Black Bibles in front of you. So please open it, leave it there, and we'll work through that passage together. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now for what you promised. Jesus said that you will give the Spirit without limit to those who ask. So we ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need his help so that the passage of Scripture might be illuminated to our eyes and we could actually see it. His help to overcome our hardness of heart and ears to hear it and receive it. His help for us to actually believe it. And we especially need his help for our hearts to be warm to Jesus Christ through it. So we ask now for the power of the Holy Spirit to fill this time of preaching and hearing in me and in your people. Come do this, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, when I was in seminary, um, I always felt like I was in over my head. Like everything they said and all the words they would use would go right over my head. I didn't understand hardly any of it. In fact, Joe Tortagarova and I went to seminary together and we used to always say, not only did we not understand what the professors were saying, we didn't even understand the questions the students were asking. Like they'd talk for a half hour asking a question and we didn't even know what they were asking, let alone what the professors would say. For example, in seminary, there were all kinds of words. Like I remember in one of my first theology classes getting a textbook and the title was A Prolegomena to Theology. I hadn't read a page and I was already lost. I had no idea what it was about. And then I came to learn that prolegomena means introduction. You know what's a great word for introduction? <laughs> introduction, right? And, and all the time I felt like they were using words and things that I couldn't understand. So another one, for example, was over-realized eschatology. And I was lost. I just, right over my head, I'm scratching my head. What's an over-realized eschatology? Where do you get one? Do you need one? I had no idea. And I've come to learn that it's essentially nerd speak for living as if the end times had fully arrived. An over-realized eschatology is living as if, you know, all the stuff that we Christians believe will happen when Jesus finally returns, when the new heavens and the new earth comes, when we live in glory, it's living as if all that stuff is already here now, living as if heavens arrive. So, for example, if you read some commentaries and you read on Corinthians and Paul's letter to the people in Corinth, commentators will say, you know, the Corinthians, they had an over-realized eschatology, meaning they lived figuring... We've got the spirit, we've got spiritual gifts, this is heaven here, and they live like that. So, for example, will there be suffering in heaven? No. And so they imagine there should be no suffering for Christians here on earth. And so you can imagine where it goes. We should be healthy and wealthy because as we will be, so we are now. They got into weird things like there's no marriage in heaven. No one will be given to marriage. And so the Corinthians would say things like we shouldn't get married. And, and, and so they would live with this idea as if the end had fully come. Now, here's why that sort of happens. On the one hand, Jesus said things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. The kingdom of God has arrived. But how do you make sense of that? It, it's sort of like this. It's like dawn. What's dawn? Dawn means the night is done, day has arrived and is arriving. It's here, but not yet fully here. Dawn is the first rays of the sun have peaked over the horizon, but the sun hasn't risen fully as it will. And so in dawn, it's not night, but it's not fully day. There's darkness and light. It's already here, but it's not yet fully here. And essentially, what the Bible's teaching is we are living in the dawn. 
in the dawn of the kingdom of God. It's arrived and it's arriving. It's come and it's coming. It's already here, but not yet fully here. Until it fully comes, there's going to be light and darkness. And you have to live like that because does anything around you right now feel like the end has fully come? I mean, you almost hear that and you go, to live as if this is heaven is crazy. You look around. Are there still deaths? Are we still burying loved ones like we did this past week? Is there still disease? Is there still tragedy? You look through your news feed. Is there still brokenness in every corner of the earth? Personal tragedies, heartaches and heartbreaks. With all this stuff not yet right, why and how would anyone live as if this is heaven here and now? Why would anyone live like glory had come? I say that, and then I want to say, but at the same time, you know, it might not be as far-fetched as we think. For example, consider this. One of the promises of heaven, one of the things we're waiting for is that when Jesus returns and heaven and earth are one and glory comes, we will all be safe and secure. We will forever be safe and secure. In the world to come, there will be no danger, no death, no mourning, no sickness, no sadness, no tears, nor pain. There won't be any risk to take. A risk assumes you don't know if things will turn out good or bad. There'll be no risk there because everything will turn out good. Nothing will ever be bad. But while we know that's for the world to come, I don't think it's too stretch, too much of a stretch to imagine that perhaps other Christians in other parts of the world would look at us and say, friends, especially you Christians here in America, you have an over-realized eschatology when it comes to comfort and security. You have an over-realized eschatology, meaning you're living as if that world had already come. You're living as if the world in which you're guaranteed safety and the world in which you're guaranteed comfort and the world in which you're guaranteed security has already arrived. Now, listen, if you're here and you're a Christian, we know enough to give at least lip service to the idea that following Jesus might mean suffering. We know that. But if we're honest, by and large, we try to fit that following Jesus with a life that all but completely avoids risks or danger or anything uncomfortable. We're trying all the time to minimize every potential failure and risk that we can. For example, Justin, our church planning resident, he's reading books as a part of his residency. My privilege in walking with him is I don't have to read the books, I just read his book reports. So he does the work and I get the benefit. So he just read a book called Just Do Something, sort of discovering God's will for your life. And as I was reading his summary, it, it struck me, the author's argument is, you know, we've got this obsession with knowing the will of God. We want to know what college I should go to, what job I should take, what, what should I buy, what, what home should I move into, who should I marry. And the author's point was to say, you know, you've got a whole book in your lap that tells you all kinds of things about what God wants for your life, who he wants you to be, what kind of person you should be, what kind of character you should have. But while we have all of that, we desperately want to know what job should I take. And the author's point was to say, essentially, our obsession is to do everything we can to minimize risk. To, to try and be as safe as we possibly can. Because I don't want to go to the wrong college. And I don't want to take the wrong job. And I don't want to marry the wrong person. And so my obsession is often not even because I'm desperate to know what God's will is. But just everything that I can to make sure that I don't make a bad decision. That I don't get hurt in the process. That pain doesn't come into my life. We have a great pursuit of and a great desire for safety and comfort at every cost. For example, a friend of mine named Sam Chaco, 
He's planting a church in Dallas called Loft City Church. He wrote this article on safety, and he says this, and I thought it was great. He said, when did we begin thinking that the life of a Christian should be marked by safety and security? Is it safe is a question that I've been asked a lot in the last several years. When a group from our church went into the middle of the red light district of Mumbai, trying to bring light to those who live in the darkness of sex trafficking, I was asked if sending a team was safe. When we were in Kenya and found ourselves in a mosque where conversations about Jesus led to things getting heated and caused people to get in our faces, I was asked why we would do something so unsafe. I've come to realize that for Christians in America, safety has become a prerequisite for doing the will of God. It's a great article, one worth reading. But I think what Sam's saying, and I think what other Christians in other parts of the world might say is, brothers and sisters, you're like the Corinthians. I mean, don't you realize that we're not in heaven yet? This isn't glory. You're not yet promised all the things that are yet to come. And so this life will be filled with dangers. It will be filled with risks. And following Jesus and his mission in this world means you're not guaranteed safety. And you're not guaranteed comfort. And you can be in the will of God and in danger at the same time. Both can happen. For example, this week I was reading an article about, particularly about parents, and the author said, and parents and our worship of what he called the idol of safety. And, and the author makes this point. He said, you know, we who are Christian parents, we want nothing in life more than for our children to know Jesus. That's what we want. More than everything else in the world, we want them to know Jesus. And then he makes a point, but at the same time, we want them to do that, but we don't want them to go too far, right? Like, not in extreme ways. Follow Jesus, but not when it would be financially dangerous for our children or physically dangerous for our children. Because what happens when kids who are raised in the suburbs tell mom and dad, I want to move into the inner city? What happens when a kid you've raised and brought up in the best education possible turns down acceptance to med school to go overseas? When they have gotten into law school, but they turn it down to teach in a third world country? I mean, I want them to follow Jesus, but, but come on, you don't have to be extreme about it. I'll tell you this, a preacher, a preacher's task is essentially just to be the first one con convicted by a passage. So I get the opportunity to be pummeled by this passage all week, and then I get to stand up so that you can join me in being pummeled. I, I'm struggling just like you, and in, in fact, I, I'm telling you, I'm still fighting through. It's one thing to stand here and to say it. It's another to live it, because soon enough, my kids will be grown. And I've got questions like, will I take them like arrows and shoot them into the world wherever God has for the glory of God, or will I keep them close and safe? Because I'm struggling just as much as you are. And, and if you feel any of that, I want you to hear, we're not alone in this struggle. And it's not just that I join your company, but the people in the passage we're looking at today, they join us as well. And this passage we're looking at, if you have it, Acts 21, 1 to 16, this passage is going to teach us that following Jesus and his mission comes with pain, comes with danger, and requires ultimately that we surrender. This passage is going to teach us that following Jesus and his mission comes with pain, comes with danger, and requires that ultimately we surrender. You're looking at Acts 21, 1 to 16. Let me just catch you up. We ended 20 
with Paul leaving the Ephesian elders. So if you were here last week, Pastor Sibby preached to us, and, and we saw at the end of 20, Paul, the church planter who had planted this church, who loved the people there, they had loved one another, he spent three years of his life there, and now they've got to say farewell. And if you remember the ending scene of 20, this group comes with Paul, they walk with him to the beach, they stand with him at the shore. If you read the end of 20, they walk with him, they get to the ship and they kneel down in the dirt, they pray over their brother, they weep and fall on him, everyone's crying, everyone's sobbing, they kiss him, and most of all, 20 ends by saying, they were saddened because he had said they would not see his face again. This was really and forever and finally goodbye. And you can feel the pain of that parting because it lingers even to the beginning of chapter 21, our passage. In fact, you can see, you can feel the pain of that parting in verse 1. It says this, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Now where's the pain? The pain is actually in that first phrase, and when we had parted from them. See, in the original language, it's stronger than just we left. It's, and when we had torn ourselves away from them. When we had ripped ourselves away from this community that we loved. When we were ripped apart from the people that we loved. This group of people that we were so close to, so safe in, where we belonged, where we couldn't imagine following Jesus without the people in that room. When we had ripped ourselves away from them when we had torn ourselves away from them, when we had been parted from them. And in fact, this gospel goodbye, these tearful, sorrowful leaving, isn't the only time in the passage. In fact, you'll see it again in verse 5. There's another goodbye, just five verses later. In verse 5, it says, When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. What does that mean? In the span of six verses, there you have it again. At the beach again, kneeling in the dirt again, crying and weeping again, saying goodbye again because there's yet another gospel goodbye. So here's what that means, Maru. It means then, it seems to mean then, that following Jesus' mission means there will be tearful goodbyes. There will be parting from people that you love. There will be a tearing yourself away from a community you belong to, ripping yourselves away from a people you love, bidding farewell, and sometimes unsure that you'll ever see them again. Now, I don't know about you, we wouldn't say it, but in our hearts, we'd almost feel like, come on, following Jesus' mission doesn't have to be that extreme. I mean, you can follow Jesus and not part with people. I I've told you this before, so it's not news to you, but my ideal vision for life is that my kids soon enough are going to grow up and go to college. And I'm not ashamed to tell you, every one of them, both of them, are going to apply to schools in Philly. No one is applying out of state. And they're going to go to school in Philly, and if I have my way, they're going to commute from home to those schools. And then my master plan in life, and I've told this to Shino and I've told this to the kids, is we're all going to buy homes next to each other, and it's going to be everybody loves Raymond, and I'm going to be Frank, the father-in-law, that just pops in when I'd like. That's my dream for life. And then I get a passage like this one, and maybe there are 
Christians in other parts of the world that would come to me and look at me like I look at the Corinthians and say, brother, I think you have an over-realized eschatology. I think they would say to me, brother, the day is coming. The day is coming when we'll never have to part with loved ones. The day is coming where there will be no more goodbyes. The day is coming where you'll never rip yourself from anyone because you will be together forever. But brother, it's dawn. The night is over, but the sun hasn't fully come. And so there's a mix of darkness and light in this life we live in. It's dawn, brother. And so since it's dawn, we live in this world. And in this world, we follow a Savior who parted. In fact, we follow a Savior who parted from his home. We follow a Savior who parted from his loved one, who left his country and his land. And ultimately, brother, in this life, we follow a Savior who was ultimately parted in a way none of us has ever known at the cross. In fact, we follow someone who was separated from his loved one in a way you and I have no idea about. Because at the cross, we follow a man who screamed out into a dark night, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, Jesus was separated in a way that you and I have no idea about. In fact, here's the wonder of it all. He was precisely separated so that you and I would never be parted from the Father like that. In order for the Father to say, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, Jesus had to cry out, why did you forsake me? He was separated for us. And then when you see that, then that means as long as we live on this side of glory, and as long as we live on this side of the eschatology and eschaton, that means there's no extreme Christians. They're just ordinary Christians. Spirit-filled people like you and me. Ordinary people who for Jesus' mission and Jesus' sake will part. Ordinary people. Ask Jim and Lena. Jim and Lena are as ordinary as they come. I grew up my whole life with Jim. There is no one in the world more ordinary than Jim. And I can tell you, he's gone to the beach over and over and over again. Over and again to the airport. Over and over again, leaving elderly parents. Over and over again, wondering if this is the right thing. Over and over again, living siblings and a church that he loves, parting for Jesus' sake. Just an ordinary, spirit-filled believer like you and me. Ask Lisa and Shainu what it was like to leave Boston what it was like to leave a community that for the first time in their life, they felt like they belonged, rediscovered the gospel and grace, experienced relationship, belonged with a group of people. We used to joke that it was almost like ripping their fingernails out of the sidewalk to get them to leave. In fact, when in the early years, when they would go back to visit Boston, I was always scared they wouldn't come back. I mean, that's how much they loved that season. That's how much they loved those people. In fact, I remember... I remember my last sermon ever at Seven Mile Road, Boston. I preached on Acts 20. I preached on Paul leaving. And I remember saying to that congregation that many years ago, 11 years ago now, small congregation, I remember telling them, I have this sense that you will walk to the beach over and over and over again. That you'll keep sending away leaders, you'll keep sending away people, you'll keep parting with loved ones over and over again. Can I tell you, that church is about 15 years old now. In 15 years, at year 15, they're the size that some churches are in year one. 
15 years of work in ministry, they're probably as big as some churches at launch. They're, they're trying hard to break through 125 and 150. But as a result of these 15 years, there's not just one church, but eight of us. Because eight times they've walked to the beach and sent away loved ones and parted with people and they've sent people overseas. And now as a result, there's one small one, but there's eight small ones. And there's, there's a guy in Philly, and there's a guy in Houston, and there's guys all over. Because why? Following Jesus' mission means that glory hasn't arrived. It's dawn right now. And that means there are tearful goodbyes. And we do part with people. And brothers and sisters, it's seeing. It's seeing. It's your heart seeing that he was parted from his father for us that can move my heart to be parted from loved ones for him. It's seeing him being abandoned so that I never would be that moves our hearts to leave loved ones for his sake. Following Jesus' mission in the world then comes with the pain of parting, with ripping yourselves away from relationships you love, with cutting yourself off from a safety of a community you belong to because you're following Jesus in his mission. But it also means, and here's second, it also means that following Jesus' mission in this world means potential danger. Where am I seeing that? When Paul and his crew leave Ephesus, as they do at the beginning of 21, the text tells us about their travels. And you go from this place to that place to the other place, and then they get to Tyre, and they spend a week in Tyre. And look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, And through the Spirit they, that's the disciples in Tyre, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Hear that again. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. What does that mean? Somehow the Spirit of God had revealed to these disciples entire that something bad was going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. The Spirit of God communicated that something bad was waiting for Paul in Jerusalem. So what do they say as a result? They say the only thing that makes sense to say, don't go to Jerusalem. God's Holy Spirit is showing us that bad things are coming for you if you go to Jerusalem. So the only thing that makes sense is don't go to Jerusalem. And they won't be the only ones. Look further in the text. After they leave Tyre, Paul and his crew get to Caesarea. Now, two-second tangent. Because what's amazing about this is they get to Caesarea and they stay with Philip the evangelist, one of the seven, the text says. Now, two-second tangent. Why this is amazing is the last time we saw Philip the evangelist was back in chapter 8. At least in the chronology of the text, it was 20 years ago. And when we saw Philip 20 years earlier in Acts, he was one of the seven. Do you remember one of the ones chosen to feed the widows and to the daily distribution of food with Stephen and the others? And then we saw Philip go to Samaria and bring the gospel there for the first time. And he was the guy who preached to the Ethiopian eunuch on his way to Africa and that guy. And then he disappeared at the end of the chapter. And we don't know where he went until he shows up again in 21. And now it's 21 years later. And 20 years earlier, this is the same Philip whose friend Stephen had been killed by one Saul of Tarsus, who had papers in his hand and was threatening Christians, and they were scattering from Jerusalem everywhere. Twenty years later, the doorbell rings. He opens the front door, and there's Saul of Tarsus, 
also now known as Paul. And this man is now hugged and welcomed, and he stays and lodges in Philip the Evangelist's house for many days. Unbelievable. Tangent over. At that time, another prophet shows up. The doorbell rings again, and now it's a man named Agabus. We had seen Agabus back in chapter 11. He had predicted that a famine would come to Jerusalem, and just like he said, it does. And now he shows up in verse 10 at Philip's house in Caesarea to communicate the same thing the disciples at Tyre said to Paul. Look at verse 10. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What did Agabus just say? The Spirit of God had just shown him the same thing that the Spirit of God had shown the disciples at Tyre. And he says to Paul, bad things are waiting for you in Jerusalem. In fact, he acts out the prophecy. He takes Paul's belt and he says, listen. And he ties his own hand and ties his own feet. And he says, the owner of this belt, this is what's going to happen to him. He's going to get to Jerusalem and the Jews are going to bind him and they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. That's what the disciples at Tyre said. It's what Agabus in Caesarea says. So here's my question for you. If you're in the room, what would you say? I mean, if it's us, and we're ready to send out a brother or sister, we're ready to send out Jim and Lena, or it's 20 years from now, and we're ready to send out your son or your daughter, and the Spirit of God has just shown the community that if we send them, if they get on that plane, Something bad awaits them on the other side. Danger is there. Imprisonment or worse is there. What would you say to that? I have no doubt exactly what I'd say. I would say, look, the Spirit of God graciously showed us what waits, so don't get on that plane. I mean, how kind was God's Spirit to tell us that danger is here? He's warning us, so you don't have to go. I would tell them with all my might, God doesn't want you to go. In fact, God graciously told us in advance that danger awaits for you, so don't go. I'd add on things like, no one's not telling you to do ministry. You can do ministry. Go to Hawaii. Don't go there. There's lots of places you could do ministry. You could do ministry right here, living next door to me. That's where you should do ministry from. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the joke that we used to say our parents would say in our generation, at least my parents and the peers around me. You, you, you could go to serve God. No one's telling you not to. Just go to med school and become a doctor first, and then you can serve the Lord. Or as a lawyer with a good house, then you can serve Jesus. Once you're safe and totally secure. And if that's you in any way, I just want you to hear, we're not alone. And we're not abnormal. In fact, we're perfectly normal. Would you read what they say in that room? Verse 12. This is how they answered. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. You know what I especially love? The we. Who's the we? We is Luke. Dr. Luke is putting himself in the story and saying, I was in the room, and when we heard this, we, meaning I also was a part of the company. That is Luke, that is writer of two of the books of the New Testament. 
On your resume, no matter how much you've done for Jesus, you don't have authored two books of the New Testament. That's pretty impressive. That guy says, when we heard it, we urged Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Luke was in the room, and Luke said, don't do it. This isn't what God wants. Find something else. You can go north or south or somewhere else, but don't go to Jerusalem. We urged him. And the urging, you'll see in the next verse, is not just asking. It's pleading. It's weeping. It's begging Paul. And look at how Paul responds. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, Stop it. He says, What are you doing? Don't you see? Your tears are breaking my heart. And the word there for breaking is the same word for sort of pounding. Like a commentator said, it's sort of like in some places of the world where they'll pound clothes against a rock to wash it. I've been to India, so I've seen that. Pounding. And he's saying, your tears are pounding on my heart. What are you doing? Your weeping is pounding on my resolve. And I'm telling you, stop it, because I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem. You see, Paul's resolve didn't begin here. If you turn back a page in 19, verse 21, he had resolved in his spirit that he should go to Jerusalem. Then in 20, verses 22 to 23, in the chapter we looked at last week, he said, the Spirit of God constrains me to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me there, only that the Spirit tells me that in every city, imprisonment and affliction and suffering await me. And now in 21, three chapters in a row, he says here in verse 13, Don't you know, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned for Jesus, but even to die for his name's sake. And I want you to hear, I don't know that you'd say it, I don't know that I'd say it out loud, but I'd hear this and we'd go, look, following Jesus' mission is good, but come on, you don't have to be so extreme. I mean, there's a a way to follow Jesus that doesn't look like this. I mean, at the top of the list, surely safety and security have to be primary considerations, don't they? I mean, don't you have to rule it out immediately if there's even the potential of danger? I can tell you that's exactly what I said. I can tell you that because I've said it before. I remember when Joe and Lisa were finally going to move down to Boston. I mean, from Boston. The original idea was we were going to move together, but for a number of reasons, they couldn't move when we moved. And so they were kept trying to find jobs here. Two years passed, no jobs, no way to come, no opening. And then I get a call from Joe from Boston saying, brother... We really sense the Lord wants us to be in Philly, to be a part of the church plant. And so I said, okay, great. Where are you going to work? No job. So here's what I think the Lord wants us to do. I'm going to resign my job and just move. And I remember saying, Lord, Joe, God just called me and said, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. I mean, I literally said he had a wife and a six-month-old baby at the time. How do you move with no insurance ready, with no apartment ready, with no income ready? And this brother resigned his job, came down here, applied for an apartment, had no income to show for it, and as the Lord would have it in two days or three, got a job. But I can tell you what my counsel was. There is no way that's what God wants you to do. I mean, I couldn't imagine, and yet I think what some Christians in other parts of the world would say to me as I look at the Corinthians would be, brother, you've got an over-realized eschatology Sure, there's a day coming where we won't experience danger. 
There's a day coming where we will be eternally safe and secure. There's a day coming where nothing will harm us and not a hair on our heads will ever be touched. But brother, it's dawn right now. The light is passing. I mean, the darkness is passing and the light is coming. And soon enough, the sun will be seen in the sky. But we're not there yet. And until that day comes, we follow Jesus in this world. And we follow a man who first set his face to Jerusalem. Semaro, don't miss this. Because Luke writes this in a way where he wants you to purposely be thinking, Paul's not the first one to set his face to Jerusalem. Paul's the second. Remember, this is volume two. He wrote an earlier volume. And in volume one, he wrote in Luke of a man who before Paul had determined to go to Jerusalem, determined to go there. In volume one, it's exactly the same scene. In chapter nine of Luke's first account, he says that Jesus told his disciples that I'm going to Jerusalem. And when I get to Jerusalem, they're going to imprison me. They're going to scourge the Son of Man and flog him. And they're going to hand him over and they're going to crucify and kill him. And Luke is writing this so that you and I would know what? Paul is ready to go to Jerusalem and die for Jesus because Jesus had already gone to Jerusalem and died for Paul. Paul's not the hero. Paul is in response to Jesus who had already gone and died in Jerusalem for him, saying, I'm ready to follow in his footsteps and go to Jerusalem and die for him. And do you know that when it was revealed to the loved ones of Jesus that he was going to suffer and die, how did they respond exactly like this passage? Because the disciples, when they heard this, Peter said, no way, then don't go to Jerusalem. And what did Jesus say? Stop it. In fact, he said to him, what you're saying isn't even just your mouth. It's the mouth of Satan. And he says essentially what? You know what Jesus says? He essentially says to his disciples, he says to us, if I pursue my own safety, it'll mean eternal danger for you. And so in order to ensure your eternal security and safety, I will go to Jerusalem. The only way for Jesus to stay safe is for us to be in the worst possible danger but it's to protect you from it's to protect you from a wrath-filled fiery eternal torment called hell that Jesus embraced Jerusalem he went in order to keep you safe in fact this is why Jesus can say in volume one Luke 21 records this Jesus is telling his disciples you're going to follow me he says this 21 verse 16 you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers, and relatives, and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake. And then, 18, but not a hair of your head will perish. You want to go, come again, Jesus? Some of you they will put to death. Not a hair of your head will perish. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I have come to bring you a kind of safety not even death can take away. I've come to bring you a kind of security that not even the grave can rob. I've come to bring you the kind of safety that can have you be put to death, and still, I'm telling you, not a hair on your head will perish. That's the kind of safety and security Jesus offers to us. 
You see, it's only in seeing him go to Jerusalem for us that we'll be able to respond to him and say, I'll go anywhere for you. It's only when we see that he was separated so that we might not be, that we might be willing to part with loved ones for him. And it's only in seeing him go first to Jerusalem that we might go across town to plant a church or grow across the country or grow across the ocean to do the same. It's seeing him go first that we respond, I'll go anywhere as well. So then it seems following Jesus' mission means that we will part with loved ones and rip ourselves away from the safety of a community, that we'll be willing to follow him even if it costs us security and comfort. But third and finally, it also means that we will ultimately surrender our will to Jesus. Following Jesus in his mission means that ultimately we will surrender our will to Jesus. You see, we, we know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Savior means he accepts us, no strings attached. Right? That's good news. He accepts us, no strings attached, because he's our Savior. But because he's our Lord, that means we follow him, no strings attached. He's our Savior, so he accepts us, no strings attached, but he's our Lord, so we follow him, no strings attached. And look at this in the text. Verse 14 says, And since he would not be persuaded, since Paul would not be persuaded, we ceased, we stopped, and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. See, Jesus had told Paul at the hour of his conversion, you're going to suffer for my namesake. The Spirit had told Paul in himself, I know I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except suffering and imprisonment and affliction in every city. Through the disciples of Tyre, the Spirit had graciously warned. Through Agabus, the Spirit had graciously warned. Paul, this is what's coming. And yet, despite that forewarning, the Spirit of God had constrained him. I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem. And so since he was resolved, and since they couldn't change his mind, since they couldn't persuade him, it says, since he would not be persuaded, we stopped. And they finally say, let the will of the Lord be done. And they walk him again to the beach, and he sets sail for Jerusalem. Here's what that means. That means surrender is, it's not what you want, it doesn't make sense to you. It's not what they would have advised. It's not what they would have counseled. It's not even what they would have done. But they finally surrendered. I'll tell you, you should hear this because I think it will be encouraging to you. I beat myself up all week as I stood at this passage. I beat myself all week because I kept going, I don't know if I would do it. I, I don't know that I'd go. I beat myself up all week because I don't know that I'd go to the places God wants me to go. And I sure don't know. If it came to my loved ones or my kids, if I would board the plane or tell them to board the plane, I would be every single one of these guys weeping, wailing, pleading, begging not to. So I beat myself up all week. But then this verse helps because this says sometimes we don't have to like it and sometimes we don't have to understand it and sometimes we don't agree with it and sometimes we may not do it and we may not get why someone's doing it. But at the end of the day, we surrender to the will of the Lord. I think I could get there. I don't know that I could be happy, but I think I could go, let the will of the Lord be done. And by God's grace, I think we could get to let the will of the Lord be done. Because I, I wonder if a Christian from some other part of the world would come and say to me, brother, the day is coming when there will be no conflict between your will and God's. 
The day is coming where what you want is what God wants, and what God wants is what you want. The day is coming where there will be no fight or struggle to submit to or surrender or accept God's will with your life or where he wants you to go or what he wants you to do. But brother, it's dawn. The day is coming, but it's not yet fully here. Until the day comes, we follow Jesus in this world. And that means we even follow him into the Garden of Gethsemane. We follow him into that garden the night before he died, where he was staring at where his father wanted to take him and what his father wanted him to do. And we follow him into the garden and we hear him praying for one hour over and over and over again, saying, Father, all things are possible for you. He's crying out to the omniscience of God. You could do anything. All things are possible for you, so please take this cup away from me. And we follow him through his prayer all the way to where he says, but, not my will, but yours be done. And it's when we hear him surrendering his will for us that we're empowered to surrender our wills for him. It's when we see him go to Jerusalem for us. It's when we see him parting with his loved one for us. It's when we see him surrendering his will for us that we're moved, enabled, and empowered to do the same. So I want you to hear this, brothers and sisters. I'm telling my own soul, I'm telling you, there's no such thing as extreme Christianity. There's just ordinary Christianity, ordinary followers of Jesus like you and me. And so here are the questions. Are you open to God's call on your life? Especially if he may want to take you away from that which is comfortable and familiar and safe and have you tear yourself away from a group of people you can't possibly imagine following Jesus without. And if he should call you to that which is risky, where it's not guaranteed success or safety, can you ask for the grace to believe Jesus that says to you, even if they kill you, not a hair of your head will perish. And should he, should he, call you to something you don't fully understand and you don't fully get, would you ask for the grace that follows Jesus to the point where you're sweating drops of blood as he is and crying out, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. The day is coming, and I want you to imagine this, the day is coming where we'll never say goodbye to one another. The day is coming where there is no danger and no risk and no threats and no harm and the day is coming where there will be no conflict between what you want to do and what God wants you to do. But today, it's dawn. And soon enough, you will look up and the sun will be in the sky. But till he comes, you follow him and in his mission in this world. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for the grace to be worthy of your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that your spirit would now produce many, many acts of obedience. We pray that we would not just hear the word and, do, and deceive ourselves, but that we might do, act in what it says. So let your spirit produce in us obedience. I pray that soon enough there would be people who are right now in this room, who are not in this room because they have left 
to follow Jesus and his mission and his call. Pray that we would surrender our wills to you and we would trust that there's a safety and a security that you've ensured for us that not even the worst things of this world could take away. We beg you, come, Lord Jesus, come. But till you come, help us to follow the ways of our master. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.